Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Great. Well, we seem to have reached critical mass. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's a beautiful fall afternoon here in New York City. Um, I am thrilled to have Mike Lampton here uh, for a few reasons. One is the main reason for the, his being here today, which is to talk about the book, Rivers of Iron. The other is to thank Mike for all he has done for the National Committee and for me in my career. There are very few people in my life where I would say, but for what they did, I wouldn't be who I am and wouldn't be able to do what I do. And Mike Lampton falls into that very small group. His presidency of the National Committee, um, 10 years before I became president, he stopped being president, but laid the foundation for creating an organization that is able to play this critical role in the US-China relationship. I mean, Mike's bio goes, is way too long to recite, but his availability to all of us at the committee, you know, he has been a mentor to me from the day one. In fact, I would say from before day one as one of the great scholars on US-China relations and on China's politics has been a mentor to me and a mentor to so many at the committee. So Mike, this today's program is for two reasons. One is for the book. The other is just a huge thank you for everything that you've done for us over so, so many years and for the time you spent as president of the committee. This book it's, it's, you know, today there is so much heat and so little light on so many aspects of China and so many aspects of the US-China relationship. What Mike's book does is it focuses us on BRI, the Belt Road Initiative, by focusing on a very specific initiative, which is the high speed and what I would call moderate speed rail connection between South China and Southeast Asia. Um, and he does it through compilation of data, through numerous interviews, and brings to, clarifies really what's going on. So in this time when there's so much heat and no light, Mike has, as he always done, as he's always done, shed light on it. I mean, needless to say, as he points out in the book, if this endeavor is successful, it will change the face of that part of the world and create connectivity, physical connectivity, that was dreamed of by the colonial powers in Southeast Asia way back when and by prior leaders in Southeast Asia. So he makes us think about it not entirely as a China initiative. But what we'll do today is Mike will talk about the book for around 15 minutes. I've shortened my 15 minute introduction of Mike, which would be too fulsome. Um, so he'll talk about the book, I'll ask some questions, and then I invite the audience to use our Q&A function and um, type some questions in. And if you do, please identify who you are and your affiliation, since it will give us a better way to 
think about the question. But Mike, thank you. Thank you for the book. Thank you for all you've done and welcome to our webinar. Well, thank, thank you, Steve, and uh, for the invitation and the generous, excessively generous words. But I also want to thank Margot Landman for all the work that goes in behind the scenes on all such projects, including uh, this project. So I want to make that clear that uh, I'm appreciative of everybody at the committee for their efforts. Um, let me also make clear, I'm the one doing the talking here, but this book was written by three people. Uh, Selena Ho at the National University of Singapore's uh, Lee Guan Yew School, uh, and Chung Chi Kuk uh, at uh, the National University of Malaysia. And, and this is a genuine equal partnership in writing and research. And indeed, I suppose one just message in passing is a project that covers as this does eight countries directly. Uh, and then Indonesia as a ninth came in uh, in important ways would have been inconceivable, I believe, to be balanced and uh, uh, informative if only one person wrote it. It's just too uh, the span of cultures, political systems, history, uh, too divergent, I think, for anyone to fully grasp. So this genuinely is a joint effort and um, my colleagues are, sometimes we uh, make presentations together and sometimes we do them individually, but that does not subtract from the truly joint character of this. This uh, book is really about the implementation of a vision. Many books are written about projects and you, you have a decision to build a project, you build the project and you trace all the problems and sometimes successes along the way. This is really a little different than that literature in as much as it's talking about the, uh, the development uh, of a vision and then the incremental uh, imp uh, application of that vision across eight countries. And it it's concerns itself with uh, the development of the vision, development of the technology to realize the vision, uh, development of the uh, negotiations that allow uh, construction to begin, and then all of the problems that here when you begin to build a project. So we, we sort of had a broad vision, or there is a broad vision of where this interconnected rail system will go, but in the very process of building it and negotiating it, the future steps in a very long process may well be changed or uh, evolve, problems come along. And so how this ends up is not fully knowable uh, now. So that's sort of the architecture. Now, uh, I asked the committee to have a map here that'll just show that vision. So this is just rudimentary and uh, uh, it's just, it's the broad uh, design. You will see the, uh, that the, the hub in the north is Kunming. And Kunming, of course, hooks to the 29,000 kilometers of high-speed rail in China. So this is really a project to connect China and its high-speed and conventional speed uh, rails uh, to Southeast Asia. And uh, Kunming is the hub. And of course, China has politics, so it's probably an interesting question why Kunming and not some other city. But in any case, it's Kunming. And there are basically three trunk lines here. One goes to the west, Mandalay, uh, Myanmar, down to Rangoon, 
and then over to, Chicago, uh, to Bangkok. If you look at the central line, Kunming sort of straight north-south, you go to, through Laos to Vientiane, then down to Bangkok. And then if you look uh, over uh, on the east side, you've got a line that goes through most of Vietnam, Hanoi, uh, down to Ho Chi Minh City, through Phnom Penh to Bangkok. And so what you see is this, this vision to the point of Bangkok puts Bangkok in a position sort of like Chicago was in the American transportation system, a hub for north, south, east, west, maritime uh, communications. And so the Thais have a very big stake in this and uh, it's, it's as much their vision uh, as anybody else's. Now all three of these lines hook up in Bangkok and then they shoot down the Malay Peninsula through Malaysia and then on to Singapore, which has uh, obviously a crucial but very small uh, uh, mileage in the whole system. So the question that the book preoccupies itself with was, where did this vision come? What are the problems they're encountering as they negotiate? Because you can't negotiate the whole line with all seven uh, transit countries at the same time. So it's about how it was, the vision was formulated, how it was negotiated, and now part of it is under construction. And just today, I believe Foreign Minister Wang Yi's in Thailand to sign a, uh, an agreement that bears on about half the mileage uh, between Laos and uh, Bangkok. So in any case, this is the story about how this came to be a, a vision, uh, whose initiative it was, what are the problems encountered, and what does it mean when uh, this or some substantial portion of it is built? What does it mean for development? What does it mean for geos, uh, geoeconomics in the region and indeed the world? And what does it mean in terms of military uh, power projection and so forth. There's a big argument about whether this is primarily strategically, meaning militarily motivated or economically. I would say the driver is uh, uh, principally economics, but as China gets more interests and workers and factories and investment and infrastructure, of course, it wants to protect all of that. And so the military, if it isn't leading, will certainly follow. So I've always resisted calling this an economic project or a military project. As the Chinese say, one hand washes the other. Now, um, the second thing I want to just say a word about is the project itself. Uh, I grew up uh, in terms of my research interests in the 1960s and 1970s. And what was so exciting about the field was it was comparative. It tried to generalize across countries. It tried to, to make the point that, you know, culture matters, history matters, geography matters. And so uh, this has been, I, I've loved all my projects, but this one uh, is really has a special place in my heart because it gets back to what, where I was interested in the field. And that is, you know, how does China interact with the environment around it? And the question of how, do small countries have any leverage when they're dealing with China? And the answer to that question, I believe, is yes. Now, Laos has less than Thailand or Malaysia or Indonesia, and maybe sometimes even less than Singapore. But the point is uh, that small countries have leverage. And the book tries to explain 
who has more leverage than who with the Chinese and why. But we can't look at China as sort of making the rest of the, its periphery putty in its hands. It's, it's not that at all. Now the chapters, uh, just quickly cutting through this, uh, it starts out with, with history. The first thing is in this world where we're all talking about Xi Jinping and he's like the motive force for everything, and I certainly uh, agree with much of that. The fact of the matter is this was a, a, a well, colonialist vision, in a sense, hooking up railroads to China. So there's a vast history here that also includes Japan as well as France and Britain, importantly. Uh, so it talks a little about that. Also, of course, after World War II and then this sort of uh, liberation of colonies and semi-colonies around the world, Southeast Asian countries, particularly Malaysia, began to think about how they could connect to uh, China. And particularly after China went into reform, it, uh, you know, the idea of China as a market and a place you want to connect to, as opposed to fear to connect to, uh, that idea, those ideas grew in the eight, 1980s, 1990s. Uh, Asian Development Bank played a big role in developing this vision and bankrolling some early studies. Uh, so the point is that Southeast Asian rail is really a Southeast Asian and big power initiative before that. And, and Xi Jinping has jumped on the train, you might say, of the Southeast Asians. And it just so happened that starting in the year 2000, China, for its own reasons, development reasons, began to build a huge new industry. So the next part of the book deals with how China built from the ground up this industry, and it's a remarkable story. It, uh, it, it, it certainly can be called industrial policy squared. It was a, uh, uh, I would say, Manhattan scale undertaking. And China bought a lot of technology initially from Europe and Japan. Uh, China, frankly, stole a lot of uh, technology, reverse engineered it, and then in many cases improved on it. Uh, and then once it had built out its system by 2013 and long rolls in Xi Jinping, they say, we've got an export industry here. And they see it as developing exports that are world class, sort of like the equivalent of Boeing driving the American economy and having subcontractors in all 50 states. China saw this industry, along with civil nuclear power and several others, as where they had uh, some comparative advantage. So it deals with the, this construction and convergence between a Southeast Asian vision and Chinese capacity, not to mention foreign exchange and its outward thrust and soft power and all of this. Another whole part of the book deals with debates in China. This is controversial in China. Right now, everybody's shutting up because Xi Jinping seems so dominant. But there are very lively debates over the wisdom of a lot of what he's doing, including this. And uh, there's a lively debate at Tsinghua, the book talks about, with engineers and leaders. Some people think it's, uh, it's unwise. Why are we spending so much money sending uh, exporting industry when, and financing it? And many of its projects aren't going to be financially sustainable. Why are we doing this? 
So there's a whole aspect of what's the debate in China. I think just one more, and then I, I just really want to get to questions. But one of the key questions is, why do different Southeast Asian states respond differently to Chinese overtures? And I mean, to, to sort of bracket it, I would say the Vietnamese are the most resistant, and we can talk about why that might be. Uh, they realize, and the Vietnamese are quite open in talking about it, if they don't play ball with the Chinese, the Chinese will just build the system around them, and they will be in a relatively worse position. So they feel they have to get involved in this connectivity system, but they don't want to be dependent on the Chinese, and there's a lot of other thought that goes into this. On the other end is the, uh, I would say, of the spectrum of receptivity is Laos. And uh, that's where the title of the book, Rivers of Iron, comes from. It was a, one of our first interviews. We went from Bangkok by land all the way to the Chinese border and uh, in the process went through Laos. And the first government official we talked to uh, was a state planner, a transportation plan. And he says, you know, Laos has got a problem here. Yes, we got the Mekong River, but it's not so navigable much of the year. And all great civilizations and all economic, economically successful countries have built by ports or on, on uh, navigable rivers and so on, but we don't have that. And we have to build our Iron River. We have to build a technological substitute. I was very surprised at the, the candor. And he says, you know, we don't have any choice. Yes, we got a big problem with debt on this thing. But if we don't take the debt, we're going to stay poor like we always have been. And so uh, that was a very straightforward. Anyway, each one of these seven countries has its own story about why it's more or less resistant. And certainly part of it has to do with the resources countries have. I mean, Thailand and Malaysia have a lot of options. Laos doesn't have, or Cambodia doesn't have. Uh, and then finally, it raises the so what question for America. How do we relate to this? This is going to change the face of urbanization, uh, change uh, uh, economic and human flows in a north-south direction. Uh, and so how are we going to respond? And of course, I guess we all can see right now we're pretty preoccupied with ourselves. And how we, but how we respond to what I think is a very, um, I would say, intelligent program that the Chinese have. And I hope somebody will ask about what is the Chinese vision here, because I think there is a central vision that's being implemented by a very entrepreneurial system. So you sort of have a uniformity of message, but a lot of people trying to push their pet projects under the central uh, mandate. The Belt and Road and so on. So it's a mix of what I call industrial policy, strategic vision, and excessive almost entrepreneurship by both state enterprises, provinces, localities. And also there are interest groups in each of these countries that want the Chinese to invest. They're trying to lure the Chinese in. So anyway, I think we're in a kind of um, excessively simple view about what China's doing in the world, why it's doing it in the world, and we're seeing threat where there is some, but we certainly also have a lot of opportunities, and I wish we'd kind of focus a little more on the opportunities.
Is that enough, Steve? That is perfect. And you were exactly, you said, we said 15 minutes and 15 minutes to the minute it was. You know, why did you, it's, it's interesting. You, could, you have written about an incredible number of subjects. What brought you to this subject initially? Very briefly, you know, what kind of, what struck you suddenly? I'm going to interview, you know, people in eight, nine, uh, Southeast, eight Southeast Asian countries about this project and, and kind of create a book on this. What brought you to this? Well, lots of things, but uh, in my in my career, I, ideas come to me at the strange, strangest times. I guess I was reading, I think it was the Straits Times of Singapore on a trip, and I saw this map, essentially not quite as elaborate and accurate as the one I presented, but essentially that map and I said, well, boy, that's going to be an engineering job. But what's going to be the politics? The, the political engineering is going to be tougher than the physical engineering. Uh, and so it was really seeing that map and just framing it as a political policy problem. That's the, the, the proximate answer to your question. Uh, a longer answer is I've always been interested in uh, infrastructure. Because infrastructure forces, it, it, particularly big infrastructure, water infrastructure, transportation, electric power, they all cross administrative boundaries. And they force administrative boundaries to deal with each other, which is politics. And I've always resisted the idea that Chinese politics is just about Xi Jinping or Mao Zedong or Deng Xiaoping, because there's a whole the vast system isn't about those guys. It's about meeting basic human needs. And infrastructure, I think, is really uh, crosses boundaries. And there you see the system naked, basically. You see it without a bunch. I just say one other thing. And this appealed to me because my previous work on water conservancy was within China. But now, you know, we used to write about policy formulation and implementation in China. But what happens when you have a global vision or a big regional vision? Suddenly your units of analysis are outside your political, outside one political system, cultures, history. So I thought this was in a sense very consistent with my interests about how I looked at Chinese politics internally, but now carried to globalization. And then finally there was a, a final thing. I could see China was becoming less accessible. And life is a kind of, there's a luck, there's a crapshoot. And uh, luckily I decided when I did this to interview in China first. I think if I had deferred that and waited for the five years it took the project to finish and done China last, I might not have had the access I had early on. So I, I uh, globalization is the answer. Yeah, kind of a two part question. Obviously the book ends you know, a bunch of months ago. Um, what has happened in the period since you stopped writing and the book then moved to publication? So that's one part of the question. The other is, take us out 10 years. Is this gonna get built? Is that map that you showed us gonna be a combination of high-speed rail and other, uh, and other rail that's gonna really change the face of Southeast Asia? Is it gonna work or is the opposition, whether it's in the Southeast Asian countries, whether it's in China, 
you know, as the debt problem grows, are you going to get increasing resistance to funding this? Well, uh, of course, uh, truth in advertising requires to me to, uh, obliges me to say, I can't be sure and I indeed don't know. <laughs> but I have a significant level of confidence in, in what I'm going to say. First part of your question was really, well, what's happened since the book was done? And it, it does go uh, very superficially up through the, the beginning of the COVID epidemic where you could see that's gonna be a big global issue. But that was added, I think, at page proofs. So uh, the book is really, I think, pretty exhaustive up through 2018. Uh, since then, well, as I mentioned, uh, Wang Yi, I believe today and tomorrow are in, China, in Bangkok to sign what has been a long negotiation with the Thais on a big stretch of railroad from Bangkok North to a, a place called Ratchasima, uh, sometimes called Karat. And then there'll be another segment that goes from that up the Northeast to the, China, uh, to the Lao border at Nung Kai, that has not been agreed to. So Wang Yi is uh, agreeing to, I would say, roughly speaking, about one third of the potential mileage in Taiwan, uh, in Thailand. Uh, there's also the mileage south of Bangkok that goes to the Malaysian border that is uh, in some degree of instability and that political instability does call into question when that link to Malaysia would be built. But I believe, to answer your question, uh, I will be surprised if you don't have the railroad from all the way from Kunming to Bangkok, the central line to Bangkok, uh, certainly it'd be, I think, conservative in my mind by 2030 and probably before that. But so I'm pretty high confidence central line, Bangkok to Kunming will be there. Just like the Transcontinental Railroad, and by the way, last year was the 150th anniversary of the building or completion of the Transcontinental. And I think Americans should remember what that railroad, getting to your question of what the transformation will be. Uh, remember what a difference it made to the project, projection of American economic and military power in the Pacific. But anyway, they will start like the Transcontinental Railroad in, in Singapore and go up to Kuala Lumpur. And that would have probably already started except Mahathir uh, got elected instead of Najib in the last election in May of 2018. And so this Mahathir came in and renegotiated the deal. And so I think, uh, I believe, and it's, they've agreed, I guess, now to solicit bids from Singapore to Kuala Lumpur. And I believe that'll probably be in existence, let's just say by 2030, if not uh, earlier. And so that leaves uh, mileage to complete the central line from Kuala Lumpur to Bangkok. That I'm not quite sure when is gonna get built. But the whole, every link you add, adds value. I mean, if you have railroad built from two ends and there's that territory in between, you've got a big value added when you complete the link. So I think each link that's built increases the pressure to build out the rest of the system. The, the, the other question is, well, will they, once they've gotten going on the central line and you can see the end in sight, 
who's going to go first, Vietnam on the east side or Myanmar on the east? And what will the Chinese do? There I'm less certain, and I suppose we're talking off decades. But I guess to answer, to just finish off your question, was so what's the transformational result? That central line goes right down the spine of Southeast Asia. And uh, I think it's going to orient the flow of human, uh, intellectual, economic resources north-south. And you just ask, well, so what does this mean for America and our friends, allies, Australia, Japan, Korea? And that, I think our strategy should be what I would call balanced connectivity. Let's help connect Southeast Asia up in an east-west direction, not to contain China, but to balance its influence and give the U.S. and our allies. We've got heck of an industry if we want to compete. So maybe we're going to have to build consortia. Maybe we're going to have to get the World Bank and Asian Development Bank back into the infrastructure business. But there's a lot we can do, and it need not be framed as just opposing China, but do, creating do, a what balance. Kinds of things. What kinds of things, Mike? I'm sorry, what? What you said, we should be participating in infrastructure development in Southeast Asia. We, the United States, with the Japanese, the Aussies, and a variety of other friendly countries, right. to do what? Well, I, I, I was speaking of, of railroads, but you could certainly think of power grids. You can certainly think of so, so we infrastructure. Should go in with forward. Japanese technology to build other rails in Southeast Asia? Sure, the Japanese are more uh, expensive than the Chinese, and uh, they tend to want to, you know, have turnkey operations, and the Chinese will kind of be a little more liberal in negotiating how you wish to negotiate, uh, implement these projects. But I guess what I'm trying to say is if we were a frame of mind for the last 20 years, we have not, we, in our development policy, our policy towards the World Bank, our own aid policies, have opposed big infrastructure because of the human cost, displacement, environment, all of those things. But, you know, for better or worse, the Chinese are emphasizing infrastructure and, and, and people in Southeast Asia are pretty well unified in the idea that they want more infrastructure. So I think our the basic policy decision is, are we going to get into that game? And uh, I have spoken to American officials uh, and, you know, in 2018, we just passed an act called the Build Act, which was the first really uh, not too significant, I think it was 115 million appropriation for infrastructure in Asia. Uh, in Asia. Uh, but the point is, we don't have to do everything ourselves. We can work multilaterally. Uh, we can begin to put our resources where we can. We can push our companies more. Uh, I think, you know, do, do we know what the return on investment on the Chinese in, in, in the in this rail system is going to be? Uh, answer no, because first of all, a lot of prices that China has, you know, you have to start debating what what is the true cost of what they're costing. Uh, also, there are all sorts of collateral deals. There are a lot of corruption and so forth. But I think the way I would tackle your question, you know, return on investment, is you have to define what you think the benefits are. If benefits is just the revenue that comes in through ticket and freight rates, if that's your revenue, then probably 
none of this will make very much sense, or at least a lot of it won't. As I was telling you earlier, only two high-speed lines in China now are making money defined as, in a sense, ticket sales versus a true cost. Uh, but you, if you have a broader vision, as I think the Chinese do and many others do, well, how do you cost all the carbon that's not built, uh, burned for gasoline to build and building cars and highways because you have more, let's say, coal efficient equivalent ways of moving people? How do you cost in the cities that now can be built along the pathways? How do you count all of, you know, you can look at it as displaced peasants, that's one way, or you can look at it as new urban dwellers that have higher value added. Now, th th this isn't just an economic question, it's a values yeah. question. But there's so, no analysis, I, there's no analysis of, of ticket prices, of um, giving real estate in areas which were previously undeveloped when you build a high-speed rail station there, the land becomes incredibly valuable in right. the neighboring areas. So there's no analysis of that. When, when I had the opportunity to work with the Japanese on building the Eastern Harbor Crossing in uh, Hong Kong, we built a tunnel with not one penny of Hong Kong government money and not one penny of corruption. We were able to financing it by, by predicting what the tolls were gonna be analyzing how many cars and trucks would be going through the tunnel. And when that was not sufficient, what we negotiated with the government, and they, they put the MTR, so the subway right. went through that tunnel. So what we negotiated for is on the Hong Kong side and the Kowloon side, we got real estate development rights at the first where the tunnel came out in both places, because that, that became incredibly valuable. And that added value made the project viable. So it was something, but our analysis was, I mean, we spent millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars doing that analysis, which we gave to the Hong Kong government, which was then still uh, a British colony. And I, I, it actually taught me one thing about Hong Kong. It was the most efficient, honest government I had ever dealt with in yes. my life. Well, it, was, it was remarkably, remarkably um, responsive to what we want. The result was we did it in three years from start to finish. Right, but but Hong Kong and I was there in the early 70s when MT, the Metro started. That, that's an outlier. Uh, I remember hearing years and decades ago, Hong Kong's the only place in the world where you can build infrastructure and it actually is a gold mine. Right. Uh, I mean, but you get on the ground and you start walking and driving from Bangkok to the China border and you're not going. And also you don't have the Shenzhen dynamic that build up and, and so on. I mean, it's really one city uh, now up to, to Guangzhou. So I think that's an outlier. Uh, the example that is more uh, uh, appropriate, I think, for the question you answer is look at the big dig. Uh, uh, I'll Boston. say underground in, in Boston. And it, I, it, what it took two or three times as long to build as they thought. And it was, I think, initially costed out at 3 billion and came in at what, 12 to 14 billion. I mean, it was a nightmare. And then they opened it up and part of it collapsed on a car going through. Some lady got, and they closed it down for a year. So I, I don't want to sit 
I, I think China's gonna often be better than the big dig maybe, but uh, I think Hong Kong is an outlier. Yes, there have been studies on expected revenues. And they've also, the Chinese have negotiated hard to get development rights. We'll make loans to you, or maybe even some uh, you know, low interest rate loans, but you've got to give us in exchange one of two things, development rights along the railroad, and countries like Thailand and even Laos resisted that. Or you've got to give us side deals where if you default on the loan, we get a, a banana plantation or whatever it is. So yes, there have been studies, but this is not homecoming. The, um, we've got a host of great questions coming in. So let me, I've got also a dozen other questions. So let me just ask my final question, then we'll go to the questions that have been, that have been posted. Um, talk about the security implications of rail. Why are there actually security implications for rail? If there were a kinetic event between China and Vietnam, they're not gonna be able to send people into Vietnam on these rail lines. They'd be blown up in 10 seconds. So explain the security implications and why we should, if you think so, be worried about it. Well, I think we should be mindful of them. I don't think you heard me say worried, although there are certain regards I could be worried. But the, first of all, I think you have to define, well, how are you defining security? And many of these countries actually are more, I don't wanna say more, well, I would say more concerned about their economic security. I mean, these trains are gonna move Chinese entrepreneurs and tourists and Chinese people in, and they buy land. And who owns land in these countries is an issue. The more accessible you make it, the value of that land goes up, you know, a lot of uh, uh, land transactions in these countries now in Cambodia, the Chinese are buying up all sorts of land in anticipation that it's going to be more commercially viable in, in a significantly short period of time. So certainly these countries, when they think about their security, they're thinking about their rights of, in a sense, sovereignty and their, their capacity to shape their own economic destinies. So, I mean, that's one thing. Secondly, uh, all of these rails in the end uh, have a connection to the major ports and harbors and the Chinese think about security. They still talk about this Malacca dilemma and being dependent, they worry about the Indian Navy in Southeast Asian waters or South Asian waters and they worry about the US Navy and Japan in its other waters. And so they're self-consciously trying to diversify their uh, modes of transportation to be less dependent on, and you can see how worried they are about maritime because China's emphasizing the, the Navy to such an extent. So I think it's part of a transportation diversification strategy. But the other thing is, as, the, uh, as China builds out, the, you could take Malaysia, for example, uh, the political leadership in Malaysia under Najib became highly dependent on Chinese corrupt money, to put it bluntly. And in fact, he was voted out in May 2018 precisely because in the view of many, he'd sold out Malaysia's, a part of Malaysia's future to 
China and developers for the big rail station and huge development there. In fact, there are several developments going on in Malaysia. And so there is almost, there can become the issue of political determination, self-determination as a security issue. So I would say diversification. And of course, once you build up big ports and so forth, the Chinese are gonna have bigger maritime fleet. They're gonna have a bigger Navy to protect it. I mean, the more you put down at a place, the more you have a security interest in protecting it. I think that's reasonable. It's certainly to be expected. Security, the U.S. Navy is not going to like it. A security interest for the Chinese in protecting. I would say everybody has interests. Yeah. The Chinese have security interests. I would have. argue it makes the Chinese vulnerable and doesn't have a serious uh, security implication for the host country. If the host country decides it doesn't want that that railroad to operate tomorrow, whatever the investment is, okay. it stops the operation tomorrow. Well, that's I think it, it actually creates a dependence of the Chinese who will have lent the money. So I would argue the interconnectivity actually creates a security vulnerability for China. Yeah. Not you a security asked, vulnerability right. for the eight Southeast Asian countries. Right. You asked me, though, what the implications were. You didn't say, you know, vulnerabilities. And what I'm trying to say is there are implications uh, for uh, everybody. Yeah. Uh, Jim Kelly over, over at PACT Forum, hi, Jim, asks um, a very interesting question. Have heard reports that China insists on a kind of sovereignty over the rail rights of way, perhaps a hundred meter strip. Could you comment? And then he says, thanks for this. Thanks for the question, Jim. Uh, yes, well, you've got seven Southeast Asian countries are the negotiating partners in separate negotiations. Uh, and a sticking point has consistently been with the Chinese. They, in effect, because the the investment costs are so great on the hardware. They want to compensate by getting flows through development, you know, a commercial development along the right of way. And this has become a big problem, I would say, particularly with Thailand. And that's one significance. You know, we don't always see these agreements in black and white in their full complexity. But Wang Yi is now, as I mentioned twice in my remarks, is in. Uh, in uh, Thailand. And a big sticking point for several years was what would be the width of the right of way and what commercial development would the Chinese have under their control? Uh, and of course, the Chinese wanted an absolutely huge right of way. And this gets to though, and I, I mentioned that these countries can, depending on which country we're talking about, more or less fight back. Thailand has what's called the Thai uh, State Railway System. And it had King Rama, I guess it was Rama V, if I remember his reign number. Uh, but in any case, he was father of the railroads. And early on, he uh, created a very big rail right away, the whole length of Thailand. And so, whereas Indonesia, you don't have any, you've got to acquire all the land and you have all sorts of fights, in Thailand, the uh, state rail authority actually controls the land. So you can uniformly negotiate with the Chinese. And the Thai rail authority doesn't principally make money on its railroad tickets. 
It makes money on land deals and development deals. And the last thing they wanted to do was give all those rights to the Chinese. So ironically, one of the bigger opponents of the Chinese high-speed railroad was the Thai railroad bureaucracy. And so they chiseled down the Chinese. And so, uh, yes, and, and it was portrayed in Thailand. I think, Jim, you mentioned sovereignty issue. That was exactly how they, and that's how the word the Vietnamese used. Uh, Vietnamese will also tell you that a lot, uh, one of the projects the Chinese were involved was such low quality, it's just been a disaster and a safety problem too. So uh, anyway, you, you're right. But the point is these, uh, depending on which country we can talk about, they can fight back and the, the Thais have done a pretty good job in negotiating. As one Thai said, we're like a beautiful woman. We have many suitors. We can afford to wait. And um, a similar question from Cheryl Brown at University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She says, will each country have input in designing safety regulations of the railroad railway system, will the railway system use radio frequency identification, RFID? Well, as to that particular technology, well, first of all, as we've said, the whole system hasn't even been negotiated. So I think probably the first thing to say is that has not been determined. But this is a, a very important question because what you have is incremental negotiations. You have the Laos followed by the Thais, followed by the Malaysians and the Singaporeans. So this is happening sequentially. So each subsequent negotiation is gonna to have to take account of all the preceding decisions, because obviously you don't want different safety standards in an interconnected, you know, very, like they had in Wenzhou, an accident that uh, killed a lot of people. Uh, so you've got, you've got sequential no, uh, negotiations, each of which subsequent negotiation has to take into account what happened before. Uh, so uh, I think they, they will have a standard safety system. And if they don't, this is really, uh, it would change your assessment of how wise this was. But this gets to another aspect. You know, when you talk about implementation of a project, you're not only talking about, you know, building the bridges, getting the concrete, hiring the laborers, displacing the people and all of that, but you're also talking about building software systems. Safety is not only a, a technical issue, but it's training all the workers. And so already Laos and Thais and are in China getting trained. Uh, so you, you're, you're, you have the problem of customs and immigration. You want a high-speed system you want people moving through it. You don't want to stop at every national border and have a conductor coming through checking everybody's passport. So how do you handle that? And we saw in Hong Kong, when China wanted to put immigration and police officers in central Hong Kong, you know, the local population didn't think that was a terrific idea. It happened, but they didn't think it was a great idea. So you raise the whole issue of how do you get a smoothly functioning system that's negotiated in countless negotiations uh, among uh, nine countries, all of whom have different interests. But I would think in terms of collision avoidance and traffic separation, 
if you don't have a, a, a standard safety system across these systems, then that means that I would think it means is Chinese standards are going to prevail. Because remember, you're trying to hook into that 29,000 kilometers of right. high-speed rail that China already has. And this just raises one very other important point your question raises, and that is the issue of standards. This isn't just about who builds a railroad or railroads. It's partly about who standards for an industry are accepted that will then shape, even if the Japanese build equipment to go on the Chinese system, it's going to have to conform in some sense to Chinese standards or vice versa. So as China is moving, the U.S. isn't just, it's just not a strategic problem, not just a direct economic problem, but it's who's shaping the standards that are going to guide development for the next, you know, 50, 100 years. Aaron Haluga at uh, NYU uh, U.S. Asia Law Institute asks about the labor issues uh, in these projects. Are large numbers of Chinese workers used on these projects and how do the host government, uh, house governments and local workers feel about that? Well, I mentioned that we also talk about Indonesia because in the sequence, Indonesia uh, started building uh, this, this road with Jakawi, uh, a deal with the Chinese that the Japanese thought they're gonna win. And so we, we talk about Indonesia, even though it's not part of the map that I showed you and is obviously separated by water. Uh, but in any case, uh, the worker issue is particularly uh, in Indonesia is a huge issue. And in the book, it has numbers on the numbers of Chinese workers in Indonesia. And of course, if you can uh, remember back to 1965, of course, and then in 1980s and 90s, you had various anti-China incidents, uh, big incidents, violent incidents against Chinese, overseas Chinese living. So you can imagine when China's bringing in large numbers of workers for these projects, not entirely welcome, and that's a big problem. And then in these negotiations, they uh, often, uh, uh, the negotiations importantly deal with how many external workers or how much local employment you're gonna give, how in Thailand, the issue of using Thai engineers versus uh, Chinese engineers uh, is a whole issue. So this is a very complicated uh, 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 issue. I would say, and I, I wouldn't want to be misunderstood as endorsing this idea, but one interview with a Chinese um, negotiator on these projects said, you know, one, I won't mention the countries that he made reference to, but he says, you know, one Chinese worker is worth five of another country's workers and 10 of another country's <laughs> workers. And so the Chinese view is the more non-Chinese you get in there, the more difficult becomes the sort of management of the workforce and so on. Of course, the local country has exactly the opposite. And so then the Chinese get into negotiation. Well, then we've got to train workers and, and so forth. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that the Chinese have a lot of problems and they're learning. But in each of these societies is a different learning experience. And as they said, one guy said to me, you know, it's pretty complicated dealing with democracies. They keep changing their government and so forth. 
I have to ask this question because unless if I have a high school classmate on, this is from doubtlessly my oldest friend on this call, Howard Spendlow, who's a professor at Georgetown University. Um, as a historian, I would appreciate a few minutes on the following issue. Does, does any of the PRC's current rhetoric on the BRI invoke anything about the legacy of foreigners building railroads inside China pre-1949? And Lawrence Sullivan at Adelphi University asks it in slightly more specific terms. He goes, how does Chinese, he asks, how does Chinese contemporary policy on building railroads abroad reflect their history where European powers, particularly Germany, were active in building China's original rail network? Well, the, the um, early portion of this book uh, deals a little with that, but I, I uh, welcome those questions and um, wouldn't pretend to be uh, an expert on all rail activity in the history of China. But I did uh, pay attention and I, I thought what Jonathan Spence in The Search for Modern China had to say was illuminating. Uh, so, and there are footnotes uh, in the book, that other sources, that, particularly on the French activities in Vietnam and Southern China and so on. So, and there's a, a very large literature on this. So uh, I'll claim to, uh, know the part of the literature, but it's much more extensive. But to answer your question, it's, it's my impression that the China, I don't think there was an inter interview and I had over, uh, we had over 158 interviews. Uh, and I don't think a Chinese person I ever talked to about railroad development ever mentioned European rail activity or that associated with the the, the um, you know, treaty ports uh, and the uh, colonial penetration of China and the 150 years of humiliation. There's a rich uh, literature uh, on European rail activity in China, but I don't think to the 99% certainty level that a Chinese ever raised that. And I, you asked me to speculate, I think it's in their view, of something of which they're not particularly proud. And yet they will talk about their new rail industry. And by that, they mean basically starting in about 1999, year 2000, Manhattan scale project. And they quite explicitly had a very uh, entrepreneurial uh, minister of railroads, uh, Leo Jun was his name. Uh, and he basically made a deal with the Europeans, give us the technology, we'll pay, it, pay you for it, and you'll get access to our market, but you've got to transfer this technology, and you've got to give us the right to build our own brand. And this is the rail technology and interaction with Europe that the Chinese talk about. Now, to answer your question, uh, I, and I, I saw a, a question from Larry <clears throat> about the Germans. It wasn't, and I might be wrong, but the Germans didn't seem like the most visible in, in the colonial era uh, railroad. Uh, to me, particularly in the area I'm talking about, the French and the British were much more relevant. And of course, Hong Kong and the Kowloon Canton Railroad and so on. Now it's true the Germans gave the Empress Zixi uh, 
a little railroad set that was, I guess, 1.2 kilometers to chug around in the Forbidden City or in the Imperial grounds. And she didn't like it. It upset the feng shui and so it went. So I don't, also the Germans built some stuff in Shandong where obviously they had their um, treaty port activity and so forth. But I didn't get the sense that the Germans were a particularly big player. Uh, Germans, it seems to me, were a bigger player along with the French and, and the Canadians in this high-speed rail effort. Secretary Pompeo goes around the world warning every country about China's malign activities. Does this BRA, BRI initiative constitute one of those malign activities? That comes from Mort Holbrook, former Foreign Service officer and old friend. Uh, well, any given project can be, uh, you know, more or less environmentally catastrophic. Uh, it can be more or less financially catastrophic, and Laos is at a lot more risk than I would say Thailand is. So I'm not trying to say there are no risks or some projects won't go pretty in unfortunate directions. But as an overall effort, I think China has basically said as its growth slows, we have to increase exports. We have to increase the wealth of societies around us because middle class classes buy more than poor people buy. And we've got to fuel our long-term growth by uh, fostering development around us. And that means urbanization. It means moving lower value added chains out of China and then going value added and connecting our own value added chains. And I think that is a sound vision. Now, execution's a big part of the story, but I think that's a sound vision. And I think we're in a national mood of rejecting everything the Chinese have to say. And believe me, I'm at the top of the line unhappy with a lot of things China's doing. But, you know, this, uh, this is a vision you have to come to terms with. And uh, a point I make, and we make continually in the book is, this isn't just China foisting a vision on Southeast Asia. These countries, almost to the person, leader, uh, agree with the proposition that to get rich, build a road. We've got the idea you've got to see the rate of return clearly. You've got to be able to have a revenue flow that, that makes sense in a reasonable amount of time. The Chinese and most of the leaders, Mahathir endorsed this book. Uh, and we had a long set of talks with him. Uh, his view was this will force development. It is a field of dreams, kind of build it and they will come. Now, maybe that'll prove true. You know, if we have a global recession or decoupling reach global proportions, then this will prove to have been a bad idea. But as the dedication of the book says, this is built to the proposition that the future was, is with connectivity, not walls. Yeah. Now, that's a proposition, not a certainty. We're going to go over a couple of minutes because there are a couple of questions which I really would like to get to. And, and as you talk, Mike, I'm reminded of the publicity in the West surrounding the commencement of the high-speed railway in China that if you read most of the mainstream media, 
uh, when China was beginning this, it was a white elephant. It was done solely for the corruption which it was engendering. And, you know, it was turned out to be wrong. That has fundamentally altered life in China. It is truly extraordinary to be able to use that high-speed rail to get around China. And I wonder if this is gonna be the same. Robert Daly asks, when the network is completed, who will manage it? Does Chinese financing and construction mean that it will be a Chinese system when it's up and running? Or will every country involved have agency? Well, I, I think the answer to that question will partly depend on, well, agreements that haven't been negotiated. So answer is not entirely but i would say there's in my uh, estimation no chance this is going to be entirely managed by the chinese i mean just take the the far end example singapore you can't imagine <laughs> right i mean just take that off the table for singapore now that's not too much mileage and the system could end if singapore didn't want to play ball so I, I think the answer in its extreme form is no, that's not possible. I think in the management of it, you're gonna have a period in Laos where they have the least uh, technical capacity, engineering competence, and the most financial dependence on China. You're probably gonna see a very large role and in part of the negotiations, which I haven't seen all of the agreements, but I understand include training and over time sort of repatriating management to countries as their capabilities uh, go up. So uh, no, I don't think in the long run, this will be entirely Chinese managed and it will probably vary by country. I think Thailand already, as I said, the state rail authority in Thailand is very powerful and I can't imagine them turning over management to China. There may be some advisors and they're certainly already training in China. China, but day-to-day -day operations, no. Now, I suppose part of the issue is gonna be as you pass off a train going Laos, Thailand, Malaysia, part of the question is gonna be, I suppose, who in each area is monitoring the throughput, so to, so to speak, and how is immigration gonna be handled and so on. But uh, I cannot imagine that this will, could even conceivably be negotiated, much less work, if, if there was any possibility the Chinese were gonna manage everything. One final question from uh, Anu Anwar at Harvard Asia Center. Do you think, and this kind of gets, I wanna ask it because it gets to the theme of the book. Do you think the BRI infrastructure connectivity projects in Southeast Asia will reshape the geopolitical landscape in China's favor? Yes, but it's not, First of all, two things are uncertain. Yes, the direction will be that direction, because as I said, they share a vision with these countries that, you know, build a road and you'll get rich. And the U.S., for a combination of our own domestic preoccupations and the West, and uh, also our financial capability, and also how do you explain helping, you know, build railroads in Asia when we, we have a hard time getting from Washington to New York, you know, on a train that's reliable. So, uh, yes, I think the resources that China is willing to provide to meet a felt need of these countries 
undoubtedly gives them influence. I mean, how could it be otherwise? But the Chinese do many things that make people less cooperative than just th that equation would suggest. Like I said, workers, how much employment are you willing to give us? Uh, what interest rate are you willing to give? And as China sees white unsuccessful projects elsewhere that it's been involved in, it's increasing its political risk assessment and its financial risk assessment and talking about how you provide security. So China does a lot of things and makes demands on these countries they don't like. And they also wish that we, meaning the West or Japan, Canada, South Korea, a lot of candidates here, if you, I, I can't tell you, even in Cambodia that's supposed to be in China's pocket, people say, you blame us for being too responsive to China, but you won't help us. Indeed, you're putting sanctions on us for, for obvious and severe human rights problems. I'm not criticizing the US decision. I'm just saying from those, that point of view where economic development is a higher priority for them, China's speaking more to their highest priority. And they don't see a lot of uh, compensating opportunities. Even the Vietnamese said, you know, we want to be less dependent on China, but what, who else is going to be there? So, you know, I, that's what I mean. If we, we don't want to see an overly beholden region uh, that's growing in economic importance for the world, then we've got to have some to offer. And, you know, a lot of times we're just talk. That is a great note to end on. I've gone way over, uh, which is not National Committee uh, style. Um, and I noticed there are a lot of friends of the committee who have additional questions, which I have not been able to reach. I'm very sorry. But if the staff can note those questions and forward them on to Mike, if that's possible to do, that would be terrific because uh, there are a lot of good friends of the committee and a lot of great questions that are remaining out there. But Mike, I can't thank you enough. We have posted the link how to buy the book. So if it's a wonderful read, if, if you love trains, you're interested in Southeast Asia and how China is projecting its, ap it's, projecting its power there, uh, it's an absolute uh, must read. And again, as, as Mike has noted, I haven't seen many books that are endorsed by um, Prime Minister Mahathir. So <laughs> even in his, in his mid 90s, he still takes the time to endorse these books, but it's, yeah. it, it's great. Um, and he says, Rivers of Iron provides insights on a central issue of our time, dot, dot, dot. But it's, it's terrific. Um, but Mike, thank you so thank much. You. And I see the audience has stayed with us the whole time, so we should have a lot at a longer period, but it's great to have been able to do this. Thanks, and I'm appreciative to everybody. Thanks, everybody. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.